Please turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 2. 2 Timothy, chapter 2. This is uh, one of my wife's relatives. This is her great, great, great uncle, George Stith Kinchelow, and you can tell he is of uh, Native American descent. Uh, Apparently for years, the family thought that they were descended from the Cherokee tribe, but then Tristy did a bunch of research and discovered that they are descended from the Choctaw tribe, which created uh, an incredible scandal in the family, which, you know, I didn't, I didn't really understand. I just, I, I just think it's cool. I think it's cool that my wife has Native American blood throwing, flowing through her, her veins. Uh, you know, I love looking at these old pictures of her family and my family because it kind of stirs me up. I think, you know, what were their lives really like? You know, what, what were their relationships like? What kind of jobs did they do? What food did they eat? What were their, their dreams and their hopes and their aspirations? What were their personalities like? I like thinking about those things, but I also find it uh, just a little bit disturbing because I realize, you know, these are people that, that we're related to, but I don't, I don't actually know them. I don't really know them. Every once in a while, my parents will show me a picture and I'll say, well, who's that person back there? And they'll say, I, I'm, I don't know. Or they, my parents don't even know the name of some of the people in these photographs. I'm, I'm pretty sure that person's related to us, but I don't know who that person is. And I find that just a little bit disturbing because I realize that will be me, right? In a generation or two, my descendants probably won't even know my name, right? They'll be digging through an old drawer. They find an old iPhone and they power it up and they, you know, start rifling through all the photographs and they go, who's that? I, go, I don't know. I think he's related to us. Don't even know his name. Don't even know his name. Uh, last year, I turned 50, which I know you're saying to yourself, no way, you look so young. <laughs> I know, right? But uh, it's true. Uh, a year ago, I, I turned 50, and I decided that in my 50th year, I would research midlife crises. I didn't want to have one. I just, that's kind of how my mind works. I thought, let me think about uh, how this whole midlife crisis thing actually works and what happens. And this is what I discovered. What happens for people is all of a sudden they wake up one day and they realize the runway behind them is longer than the runway in front of them, right? And because they fear death and realize they haven't spent enough time being selfish, they do something stupid, right? That's a midlife crisis. There you go. Okay, in, in a nutshell, that's what happens. And, uh, you know, other people, they look back, they go, okay, the runway behind me is longer than the runway in front of me, and they grow in wisdom. Say to themselves, you know, since I have fewer years remaining, how can I really live well? How can I invest my life in such a way that even if my name is forgotten, I leave a legacy that endures? So this morning, I want, to, I want you to just kind of do a mental exercise with me. I want you to imagine that your runway is shorter in front of you than it is behind you. Imagine that you've just got maybe three to five years. Okay? Because the fact is this, whether you are 75 or 17, you're not promised another day. Right? You, you could have just three to five, or you could just have tomorrow. So imagine... If the runway is shorter in front of you than it is behind you, how can you really live your life well? Invest in such a way so that even if your descendants forget your name, what you love and what you value, what's important to you, endures. And the Apostle Paul would tell us this is how you do it. Invest your life in the lives of others for the kingdom of God. Right, this morning we're going to study 2 Timothy 2. Verses 1 through 7, in my opinion, this is, the, this is really the, the central thesis of the entire book. 
This is Paul's instruction to Timothy as Paul looks at his own life, sitting in prison. He's anticipating death. He doesn't know, does he have a day or a week or a month? But he knows the runway in front of him is much shorter than the runway behind him. And he realizes, in a sense, that his legacy is dependent upon Timothy. And so he's instructing Timothy, Timothy, here's how you can live well and guarantee, in a sense, that I have lived well. Live your life by investing in the lives of others for the kingdom of God because only a few things last. People and the kingdom of God. So invest in these things that really matter, Timothy. So let's begin reading chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, now let's stop right there. This is very typical of Paul. Uh, Before he tells Timothy the things he needs to do, he talks to Timothy about his resources, right? This is very typical of Paul. Resources first, then responsibilities. If you look at uh, the book of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3 is all about your resources, and then 4 through 6, responsibilities. Paul says, here are the resources first, then the responsibilities. Romans 1 through 12 1 through 11 is all about your resources, the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, 12 through 16, then your responsibilities. Here Paul starts out, 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, first, Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in the grace, the power that you have, be strengthened by that. You know, for all of us, when we face a crisis or when we face a challenge in life, we dip into our resources, right? We go somewhere to find strength appropriate for that particular challenge or problem or crisis. It may be physical problems, so we dip into the the depths of our physical strength to solve that problem, or it may be our intellect. It might be your, your personality, your charm, the resource that you draw from. It might be education, or it might be money, or it might be friends or family. You're gonna find that appropriate resource to solve the problem that you're facing. Now, here's a fact. You will face challenges in life for which your resources are entirely inadequate. You will face challenges in life for which your personal well of resources, no matter how deep and diverse it is, is completely inadequate to face the challenge. And that's on purpose. God made you that way. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says this, But we have this treasure, that is, the treasure of the gospel of the grace of God. We have it in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We have this treasure in in bodies and minds and spirits that are are limited and fragile and breakable. So that when exceptional things are done through our lives, people say, all the credit really must belong to God. Because that man or that woman did not have the resources to solve that particular problem or that particular challenge. And that's on purpose. Where do you go when you're faced with a challenge that's beyond your resources? 1 Samuel chapter 30, David's men are about to commit mutiny against him. These are men who've been been following him through the wilderness. He's not king yet, but he's he's had them with him, uh, several hundred of them. And this group of men have followed David. They've left their town of Ziklag in the Negev. They've left it behind. And when they return to their town, what they discover is everything's gone. Remember the story? Everything's gone. All of their clothing, their food, their housewares, their camels, their donkeys, their wives, their children. 
and they're heartbroken and they're weeping and they're angry and they want to kill David. And the word says, when David saw this challenge, he saw this, this problem that was beyond his resources, it says David strengthened himself in the Lord. David strengthened himself in the Lord. So what does it mean to strengthen yourself in grace? Let's go back to our definition of grace again. Remember last week we talked about this. Grace means God's unmerited favor. You don't deserve it, but God's favor is toward you. God is for you. And he's demonstrated that he's for you by giving you his son, Jesus Christ. You don't deserve to have Jesus, but he gives you Jesus. He gives you his precious treasure, what is most valuable to him. That's grace, and he gives it freely. You don't earn Jesus, you just receive Jesus, you believe. So how are you strengthened in grace? Well, you're strengthened first when you first receive. You receive Jesus, you receive God's grace in Jesus, and that debt of sins is removed, and we're told we receive a spirit that is a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. It's strength, right? That's the gospel, and maybe this morning you need to receive the grace of God for the first time. You need to say, I need that strength, I need that power, because I have a problem I can't solve. You know what the problem is? problem is sin. The problem is sin and separation. It's a problem that you cannot solve on your own. You can't reconcile yourself back to God, and so God in his grace, this is what grace means, God took the initiative toward you, even though you were dead in trespasses and sins, to forgive that debt and reconcile you to himself. And that's power, people, so that you don't have to walk through life with shame and guilt. You're released. Maybe you've received that grace for the first time, but you need to know, how do I continue on receiving and enjoying and being empowered by the grace of God? What does that mean exactly? James chapter 1, verse 17, James says this. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. James says this. Everything you have actually is a gift. Everything. It's, uh, as Charles Spurgeon wrote in one of his books, it's all of grace. Did you know, uh, actually, that the word for uh, thanksgiving or thankfulness in Greek is from the same root as the word for grace? Thanksgiving and grace are both from the same root. So what is thanksgiving? Thanksgiving is acknowledging grace. So how are you empowered by grace? Acknowledge, right? Acknowledge that all that you have is a gift from God. You are forgiven, Give thanks. Consciously, actively give thanks. Your debt of sins is removed. Give thanks. You have eternal life. Give thanks. You have the power of the Spirit dwelling in you forever. Give thanks. How are you empowered by the grace of God? You're consciously, actively, consistently, always giving thanks for all things. You know, in my personal spiritual life, the most powerful spiritual discipline that I've ever experienced is simply gratitude. Just consistently, actively giving thanks for all of the gifts that God has placed into my life. Uh, In Hebrew, there's actually an interesting word. Uh, It's a pretty common word. It's the word remember, zakar. To remember means uh, to to actively call to mind, right? It's not just uh, a thought passes through your mind. You go, oh yeah, I remember that, that event happened. To remember means you actively, consciously call it to mind. And so consistently throughout the Old Testament, God calls his people to remember. He says, remember, you were slaves, you had no freedoms, you had no property, you had, you had nothing, you were slaves, and I redeemed you, I rescued you. Remember that. 
And it also means to recite or to declare. As you're remembering it, it's not just a, a mental activity, but it's also a verbal activity. You're doing it back to God and you're declaring your thanksgiving, your remembrance. You're declaring it to the people around you because that encourages them and that motivates them. And they experience strength through grace. Right? That's what it means to be strengthened in the grace of God. So Paul says, first, Timothy, uh, be this, be strengthened and then do. How do you want to live in such a way that your legacy lasts. People forget your name. But what you value and what's important to you endures forever? Well, Timothy, let's start here. You don't have the power. You don't have the resources to do it on your own. So be strengthened in grace. Second, he says, pass it on. What you have received, pass it on to others. Chapter 2, verse 2. The things, Timothy, which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I think this is the big idea. I think this is the main idea of the book of 2 Timothy. I think Paul is concerned about his own legacy and he realizes, for my life to live on, I need Timothy to get it. This is the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations. This is spiritual formation. This is not just the central idea of the book of 2 Timothy. This is the central commission of the entire church. Right? Pass on what you have learned. So I want to make three observations. The first is, Paul says this. He says, the thing which, things which you have heard from me. What is that exactly? What did Paul want Timothy to pass along? Wouldn't it be great if we knew? If, if he just made a list? He did. <laughs> he did. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon. Here you go. Here you go. Right? Paul, Paul actually did. He wrote it all down. The things which you have heard from me. What does that include? Well, certainly, you know, the beauty of the nature of Christ. Fully God and fully man. In, in one person, united. What a, what a phenomenal mystery. Paul loved to talk about that mystery. And, and the personality of Christ. His, his humility and his sacrifice. The beauty of Jesus Christ. The beauty of the church. Another mystery. Not revealed beforehand, but now we have Jews and Gentiles Slaves and free, we have people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nations. They're they're co-heirs of the grace of life in one new community, one new family. Paul loved to talk about that. He loved to talk about the fact that we have the Spirit dwelling inside of us who empowers us so that we can serve one another, we can serve the world. These are things that just inflame Paul's heart. Jesus is going to come again, second coming, and he will set all things right. So Christian family, you can live in hope. Paul loved to talk about that. And he loved to talk about the gospel, right? Justification by faith. You are declared righteous when you believe. You just believe. Paul wanted to defend anything. It It was the gospel of Jesus Christ and justification by faith. And he says, Timothy, the things that you have learned from me, entrust these to faithful men. Okay, entrust them. I want you to turn back to chapter 1, verse 14. Same word is used here as in chapter 2. Guard, he says, through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. And the implication is this. Uh, Paul's not just exhorting Timothy to pass on information, but he's encouraging him to pass on, on a love for the information, so to speak. So Timothy, this is... This is a treasure entrusted to you. Pass it along. Pass it along. I read a great book last year 
I think I've referenced it before, it's called the talent code. And it talks about how you, you grow talent in yourself, but also how you grow talent in others. And in the, one of the chapters of the book, it talks about uh, coaches and teachers, the best ones who get the most talent out of people. And he said that it's really a simple, simple process. They, they have two qualities. One is they absolutely love the subject matter, and they love the student. Right? They love the subject matter, but they also love the student. This year, freshman year in high school for my son, Ben, uh, he got signed up for uh, art history class. <laughs> you know, 15-year-old boy, art history, you know, and he came home, he's like, oh my gosh, art history, and he shows me this book, it's this huge book, and he's just, I mean, bemoaning, and he's like, dad, really, do I have to take this, you know, shouldn't this be an elective, art history, art history. Last week, we're driving around, he said, dad, I love art history. <laughs> oh, well, what's the change? You know what the change is? Changes? The teacher. Because Mrs. Lee is a great teacher. She's a great, great teacher. She loves her students, and she loves art history. And she even shows how art history somehow is relevant to a 15-year-old boy's life. He loves <laughs> art history. Because Mrs. Lee loves him and loves the students and loves the subject. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. This is Paul's philosophy of ministry. He said, Having so fond an affection for you... We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, the content, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. We didn't want to just give you a download of the information. We gave you ourselves. Paul Paul clearly loved the information, but he loved the people. He says, Timothy, the things that you have heard from me, this content entrusts them, passionately pass them along. To whom? To, To faithful people, faithful men, faithful women faithful. That is those who can pass it along to others. Right? If you're a parent, your first responsibility is to disciple your children. Right? Because um, th- that's who you selected, so to speak, to be part of your family. You brought them in. It was a really good book. First book on discipleship I read is called Lost Art of Disciple Making, Leroy Imes. And he talks about uh, selection, association, and then instruction. Right? Association is love them. Instruction is the content. Selection comes first, and that is uh, find those people who are responsive to you. I, I'd label it as hunger. They're, they're hungry. They're hungry. They want to know. They want to learn. They want to grow. Find these people. I'm not saying that, that others aren't ready to be discipled or poured into, but what you're saying is you see something in them, and they see something in you, and God has caused an intersection of your lives. There's a moment, and you sense the Spirit is moving there. Find those people. Paul says... Paul says, Timothy, look, you can't, you can't pour your life into absolutely everyone. Jesus just cho- chose 12, and he was the son of God, and you're not. Right? You're not Messiah. So, so find those people, those few that you can pour your life into, because this is the great commission. Right, men, men and women, this, this is it. Right, the result is, as he says, they will be able uh, to teach others also. Right? You hand it to one person, they hand it to another person, hands it to another person. Right? The image that uh, comes to my mind is uh, the relay, relay race. Right? And uh, you know I'm not, a, I'm not a prop preacher, but um, if I put this in your hands today and you touch it, uh, you're going to remember it. Don't hold it. Don't hold it. You can pass it. There you go. Okay? Because if you touch it and you pass it today... You're going to remember it. So uh, I probably won't use any props next week, but I just want you to start moving it around. So everybody's just going to put their hands on it. 
Because that's the image that comes to my mind. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy. Timothy, my runway is getting really short, and I need to know that you get it. That you're going to take it, and you're going to pass it along to others. And you're not going to drop it. Uh, If you were following the Olympics at all this year, you saw uh, this moment. Uh, It's heartbreaking, right? Our our women's 4 by 100 relay so, so fast, but they dropped the baton. I mean, they, they were crying. People all over, you, you know, Americans all over the world, they're, they're crying. It's just horrible. But they protested. Remember, they protested, reviewed the film, and recognized that uh, Allison Felix had been interfered with. She'd been bumped. So they got to rerun their qualifying race. And the result was they did get to go on to the final race. And here's the result, right? These women won the gold medal, right? There's a good whoop for uh, U.S. women. who just They were amazing. Tragic when they dropped the baton. Celebrating together when they passed it. They passed it well. And they didn't drop it and they ran across the finish line. And men and women, that's that's really, that's that's the model for the mission of the church. That is what we do. And so the question is this. uh, why, Why don't we all participate? Why is it taking the church so long to to get this? Uh, In my experience, when I've challenged people in this area, the normal response is, I just don't know how. Nobody ever did this for me, and so I don't know how. Well, here's here's a true confession for you. I I graduated from seminary with a degree, it's it's known as a TH.M. That stands for Master of Theology. I didn't master a lot. I mastered a a few things. Mostly, I just kind of learned what more of the questions were, right? Uh, I came out knowing uh, how to read some Greek and how to read some Hebrew and having studied quite a bit of theology and a lot of Bible and that kind of thing. But uh, after I got my master of theology, I remember very vividly a day when a student came up to me. I was back here at Grace. A student came up to me and he said, hey, Brian, would you disciple me? And it was just, you know... uh, Sometimes I think I'm complex, and sometimes I think I'm just really a simple person. It was just like all of a sudden I had this moment where I realized, I don't know what, I don't know what that really means. I don't know, I don't know how to do that. I, I know people had poured into my life, but I didn't really have a plan. I didn't know, I don't know what to do with him. But I did know that the Great Commission was still relevant to the church. I did know that that's why the church is still here. And so I said, yes, but I don't know how. I mean, I was honest with him. I said, sure, I will. I don't know what that means, and I don't know how. But if you're willing to learn with me, then yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Because, you know, I've, I've never been one to, you know, ignorance is not going to slow me down a bit, right? <laughs> Just, let me charge forward, and we will figure this out. Because we must. We must. And so don't say, I, I, don't, I don't know how. Because this is the calling of the church. Paul says, Timothy, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these things to faithful men who will be able in turn to teach others also. That's it. That's the strategy. That's the mission of the church. Now, 30 says, Timothy, you've got to sweat it out. Because when you begin investing in the lives of others, it's going to be really, really hard. And you may invest for a week or a month or a year, and, and you don't see a lot. In fact, it seems like everything just starts to break down, and the personal relationship doesn't really work, it doesn't gel, or they're no longer receptive to you, and you, you're not seeing it. And you may not see it in a week or a month or a year, but I promise you, men and women, if you give your life to this, if you give your life to this, 
you will leave an enduring legacy, even if your name is forgotten. What you love and what you value and what you believe in will live on. Paul says, Timothy, this is going to be hard work. Read with me, chapter 2, verse 3. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Paul actually piles on three of his favorite analogies right here. The first is the soldier. About the soldier, he says, Timothy, here's what you need to learn. The soldier has to say no to lesser things. Roman soldiers signed up for 20 years. It was a 20-year commitment. And in that 20 years, they were not allowed to marry. They were not allowed to uh, engage in, in farming or manufacturing or commerce. They had to stay completely and utterly focused. So that doesn't mean that, that Christians shouldn't get married or get jobs or do anything. That's not what it means. The point of the illustration is avoid entanglements. Okay, read it with me again. No soldier in active service entangles himself. It's a metaphor. Uh, the word entangle means to interlace to the point of immobility. It was used of a sheep whose wool got caught up so much in the thorns that the, the, the sheep literally couldn't move. Or to become involved in an activity to the point of interference with a greater activity or a greater objective. Now, this is what the author is talking about in the book of Hebrews. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Right? Same imagery. Do not become entangled. And if, if you hear about spiritual multiplication, you hear about discipleship, you hear about the Great Commission, and there's nothing in your heart that rises up and says, yes, I, I can do that. That's what I should give my life to. I should pour my life into others who can pour their lives into others. If there's nothing that, in a sense, really kind of stirs in your heart and says, yeah, it's, it's a little bit scary and I haven't done it, but I need to. If nothing stirs up in your heart, then probably you're, you're entangled. Right, because this is the great calling of the Christian life. And it may be that you're entangled. It might be, it might be sin, as it talks about in Hebrews 12. It might be a sin that just, just pours cold water on the fire in your heart. It could be a sinful entanglement. entanglement. Or it could be uh, something much simpler. It could be uh, you know, that your job is it's actually entangling. It, it, it squelches all of your love for other things because you want so much from it. It's become a bit of an idol whether it's the money you receive from it or the praise you see, receive from it or something, it's you know, entangling your heart. Or it may, it may just be even a hobby, something that's good. It's kind of innocuous, but you love it so much and it takes up so much of your mental space and your emotional space and all of your time that you don't have space. You don't have time to pour your life into the life of someone else who needs you to help them grow in Jesus. It may be that is your entanglement. Paul says, look, soldiers in active service set aside the entanglements. And it may be this morning the Spirit is speaking to you and he's saying there are entanglements. Maybe they're sin. Maybe they're just good things that aren't the best thing. But there's no space in your life for this thing that is best. This thing that, in fact, for all of eternity, you will be pleased that you invested in. Which is making disciples of all nations. That's his first analogy. Second analogy is that of an athlete 
Another one of Paul's favorites, 2 Timothy 2, verse 5. He says, also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules, right? And Paul, Paul lived in a very athletic, competitive world. The Olympic Games were every four years. The Isthmian Games were every uh, two years. So he saw this all the time. And he knew, the whole culture knew about the rules for training, right? Ten months, you were sequestered in training. You couldn't come out. If you left the training during that ten-month period, you were disqualified. You couldn't run. You had to train from morning until night in, in any weather. It didn't matter if it was you know, hot or cold or rainy or sunny. Sun's beating down on you or the freezing cold rain. It didn't matter. You still you train. And if you missed a call to training in the morning during that ten months, you're disqualified. There was strict, strict training. This is what Paul's alluding to in 1 Corinthians 9. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things, right? They just dial in and they remain focused. This is my goal for the next 10 months. And then there are rules when you're competing. You cannot interfere with the other runners. You have to stay in your lane. And if you don't, right, the the team that bumped uh, the U.S. women, they were disqualified because they didn't stay in their lane. They weren't where they're supposed to be. They, They interfered. And sometimes athletes were tempted to interfere so that they could gain an advantage, they're tempted to cheat just a little, just to gain an advantage over others. Remember a couple years ago when Lance Armstrong was finally discovered? I was, I mean, I was surprised but not surprised, right? In the back of my mind, there was always this, this doubt. I thought, really, is he really, really that good? But, you know, then he'd come out publicly and he's just so adamant, right? And if somebody ever made an accusation, man, he just crushed him. And, and when it all came out, I began thinking, I remember thinking to myself, you know, what was he thinking, what was he thinking? Was he thinking he'd, he'd, that he could possibly never get thought? What was he thinking? And I'll tell you, I know what he was thinking. He was just thinking about himself. He wasn't thinking about the sport and the honor of the sport. He wasn't thinking about uh, reputation of fellow competitors. He wasn't thinking about his teammates, the companies that sponsored him. He wasn't thinking about his country. He wasn't thinking about his family. He wasn't thinking about what this would do to his children. He wasn't thinking about anything but himself. What's the rule in our race? We, we don't think of ourselves. We do this for the honor and glory of the eternal God and for the good of others. That's why we do it. Now, the beautiful paradox of this is when we give ourselves away, we get more in return. Right? When we give ourselves away, we actually end up getting more in return. That's what Jim Elliott was talking about when he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Give it away. Actually receive more back in return. But what's our driving motivation? What's the honor and glory of God, his reputation in the lives of others? We do it for God's glory and the good of others. That's the, the rule, so to speak. And notice uh, when Paul exhorts Timothy, he says, the, the things that you've heard from me, Timothy, pass these along. Timothy, you don't need to tell people where you got it. I'm not concerned about my name. I'm concerned about Christ's name. And just the other day, I was talking to this lady, and she was telling me about um, uh, a talk that she was able to give to a group of women. And she paused at one point. She said, you know, I think I'm, I may have actually you know, stolen that from you, Brian. I said, you know, so that's all right, because I stole it from somebody else, right? And, and, they, and they got it from somebody else. And generations back, they probably got it directly from Paul, and he got it from the Spirit. So don't worry about it, right? It's actually not mine. And you don't need to cite the, the source other than, in a sense, the Spirit of God. Now, Paul's not worried about his reputation. What he is worried about is the investment of his life. 
entrustment of his life. So he gives a third analogy. It's this, labor diligently as a farmer. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. This word for, for hardworking means literally, it means um, to, to labor to the point of weariness. And throughout classical literature, it is frequently attached to farmers. When I think about people who work hard, I think farmers, right? The, the work is really never done. You can always be doing more, laboring to the point of weariness. When my kids were little. Uh, I used to, you know, when they get a bit, bit lazy and I ask them to do something and they'd be lazy, I'm like, you know, you didn't grow up on a farm. Your life is easy. You need to not complain, right? You don't have to get up early in the morning and milk the cows and feed the horse and all that. You know, stop being lazy. And their response to me when I pulled out that particular guilt and shame, right? In my parenting book, right? Lots of guilt and shame. I'm just, you didn't grow up on a farm. They said, well, dad, you didn't either. You know? Yeah, but if I had, I wouldn't be complaining about it, right? So work hard, work hard, right? Paul says to Timothy, spend yourself in this. Labor to the point of weariness. How do we do that without becoming legalistic? Here's how. It's all of grace, right? Let's go back. It's all of grace. The fact that you have eternal life, that's of grace. The fact that you understand now, this morning, that the Great Commission is for you, that's grace of God. God's grace revealed that to you. The power to go out and make disciples, that's the grace of God. Another theme verse from Paul, 1 Corinthians 15.10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove to be vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. I love that three times. It's the grace of God. I have eternal life because of the grace of God, which informs me to, to labor diligently. But really, it's not me. Ultimately, it's the grace of God. If anything lasting, enduring happens, it's because of God's grace in my life. All right, so three analogies, and all of them roughly have the same point, and it's this. Stay focused on the goal. Stay focused on the goal. I've done a lot of weddings uh, in my ministry life. And a great moment in the wedding is when the doors open back there, the bride comes through, and the groom, man, he's focused, right? He's just dialed in. And I will tell you, I, I don't take that moment for small talk with the groom. Right? I, don't, I just go, hey, can you remind me again, what was, what was your major in college? And you, okay, so do you have a job lined up already? What are you guys planning for honeymoon? You got, do you have a house to live in after the honeymoon? You got your furniture? But where'd you guys register? You know, I'm, I, don't do, I don't do chit-chat small talk because he's, he is focused, right? And, and even if I tried to chit-chat, man, the groom is dialed in and every groom responds a little bit differently, right? Some are just, ah, and they're sighting, and they're smiling. Some just like start bawling. <laughs> you don't know what, what, what's going on here overwhelming emotion that the waiting is over and he's about to receive the prize. This wonderful, beautiful gift. Focused. I want you to notice something. Three analogies, but with each of the analogies, there's always a reward attached. Read with me again. Verse three, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Timothy, this is going to be hard. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. That's the reward, pleasing the commanding officer. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share or the, the fruit of the crops. Paul says this, anticipate the reward. Right? There is a reward for investing your life in the lives of others. And I, sometimes we say to ourselves, but, but we shouldn't want that, right? We shouldn't long for it. 
Just, just having eternal life should be enough, and we shouldn't be motivated by rewards. That seems so you know, spiritually mercenary, right? Now, let me remind you, a few words from Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. He said this, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Go back and read the Sermon on the Mount. Just in in those three chapters, that short sermon Jesus gave, he talked about rewards and treasure 12 times. Okay, 12 times. Because he knows that we are motivated in the midst of, of, of challenges and crises and suffering. We're motivated by that, that future promise of reward. Let me read to you again from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How did Jesus endure all of this hostility and suffering and shame of the cross? He looked to the future reward of his father saying, well done, well done. So what is the reward? Next week, next week we'll talk about the reward of investing your life in the lives of others. Before we end, let's just make one application. One application. I just want you to think about it. Let's read verse seven. Paul says, now Timothy I want you just to consider what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So Timothy, just stop and think about this. Timothy, Timothy, this applies to your life. This is your life. This is your calling. Timothy, think about it. And and when you think about it and you're really open, you open your heart to the voice of the Spirit, God God will give you insight. It's the word for discernment in, in everything. So church, I want to ask you this question. What's, what's holding you back? Okay, A couple application questions first. What's holding you back? Uh, for some people, I've noticed that uh, they never have actually felt the urgency before. But here's the deal. Church, if we don't figure this out, the church dies in a generation. This is Jesus' only plan. Right? Some of us have never felt that sense of urgency. Or for some of us, maybe we never knew. Right? I mean, I, I knew it, I guess, conceptually, and then I finished with a master's in theology, and then I realized, okay, this is, not, this is not just a theoretical thing. This is the work of the church. And I need to understand how to do the work of the church. And maybe you didn't know about it, or you didn't feel a sense of urgency for it before. Maybe you just don't know what to do. Well, uh, we have people here who would love to help you with that. You can talk to Zach. You can talk to Brad. Talk to Chris and Nancy Merrill. They'd love to help you learn how to make disciples. Um, you can talk to Brian and Aaron White, Campus Crusade. Talk to Cameron and Sonia Norvell with Navigators. Uh, what do they do in their ministries? They make disciples, right? That, they, they understand that process. There are lots of people, lots of resources around here who can help you learn how to do it, right? Sometimes uh, we don't dial in because we're just distracted. We're entangled. And maybe this morning the Spirit is pointing out an entanglement in your life. There's no room 
for you to invest in the lives of others because you're entangled in things, and maybe some of these things are really even good things. But I promise you, you will hit that point in life where you realize there's actually less runway out here in front of me and more runway behind me. And have I really lived well? Have I left something behind? If my name is forgotten, will they remember what's really truly valuable to me? So, ask the Spirit to identify what's holding you back and remove it. And then second, I want to really challenge you. Find someone to invest your life in. You may say, gosh, I don't really have that much to give away. Well, give away whatever you got. Okay, even if it's a small thing, find someone that you can share that with and invest in so that they can grow deeper and richer in Jesus Christ. And maybe what you give to them is just this vision for spiritual multiplication, right? So that they make disciples who make disciples who make disciples until Jesus returns. And there are men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation worshiping before the throne. And we go, ah, it was worth it. It was worth it. I leave you with one of my favorite quotes. It's taped on my desk. It's one of those quotes that really helps me focus. I read it uh, nearly daily. It's from Theodore Williams. He said, We face a humanity that is too precious to neglect. We know a remedy for the ills of the world that is too wonderful to withhold. We have a Christ who is too glorious to hide. We have an adventure that is too thrilling to miss. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would stir up uh, this church. I pray, Father, that you'd stir us in, in a way that you've never stirred us before, that we would give our lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that we would do so with courage and, and boldness. I pray that you'd protect us and guard us from discouragement when things don't move as we expect or as quickly as we expect. But we'd understand that this is a lifetime. It's a lifetime investment. And no matter w- whether 17 or 75, Father, this is what we're called to do. Father, help us figure it out. Help us to do it well. Help us, Father, be a church that does make disciples of all nations so that we can rejoice and celebrate as we stand before your throne with men and women from all over the earth who love you because we sacrificed. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go and make disciples of all nations. We'll see you next week.